Hi, I'm Kara O'Keefe. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, now part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, we're sitting down with writers across the genre spectrum, so subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org for more information on the festival. So Susie, I wanted to ask you a question that I'm sort of surprised we've never really talked about before, and that is, are you somebody who always reads the end of the year best books published this year lists? I'm a big browser. I actually, every time I see those, I go through and I'm a book cover person first. So I look at the covers and then I dig into why people are recommending these books. Why are they important to them? And then I definitely find myself at the library, putting myself on hold (laughs) for all of these copies. How about you? I always read them and I feel like I spend, I end up spending way too much time on them. As soon as the first ones start coming out around, you know, November and early December, I start bookmarking them. They come out from the New York Times, from the Washington Post, from the Millions and the Rumpus and Lit Hub and all of these other, you know, both national news news stations and, um, and, and more niche literary websites. And I get so interested in them and looking at what seems to be making all of the lists, what, what, what certain people are finding that was maybe overlooked um, in other places. And, um, and I think it's such an interesting thing to, to be doing. I, I, I always end up starting making my own list too of everything I wanted to read that I didn't get to. Um, and then my to be, to be read pile grows exponentially <laughs> to a place where it's just out of control. This is a really interesting question because, you know, one of the things you said was, and that I do as well, is I look at what book makes all the lists or what book only makes one list or it appears here and there or the ones that I absolutely loved but didn't make any lists. And that opens up a really good question is how do you even start once you get past the you know most anticipated novels of November, which is so specific, when you get to those broader best of lists, how do you even start with that? One of the things I think is so interesting about those book lists is there's almost always a big conversation about what got left out, that, that there was something that seemed so obvious to a lot of readers that should have been included on there and wasn't. And I think that's really interesting because anytime you're looking at a hundred best books of the year or anything like that, it's a, such a small sliver of what's actually being published at, at any given time that, that those lists are bound to miss so much. That's a good point. How much is being published? And I, I think about how I would make a, a list of my favorite books? What would I include? What books do I want to recommend? And I think for me, the starting place are, what are the books that I remember the most? What had the biggest impact on me, whether that was me just absolutely losing it, laughing, or, you know, sometimes crying. One of the examples I I recommend to pretty much everybody is uh, Deaf Republic by Ilya Kaminsky. And, you know, I don't read poetry every day, but what I love about this is I, well, I sobbed. That's like a great <laughs> recommendation in the reading world, but it's so powerful and it's it's political and it uses sign language. It's just so new. And so for me, as I'm looking at all these books, I'm looking for newness and that gut punch you're looking for, whether happy or or sad. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. When, uh, when you talk about like what books make you sob, I always, I always start thinking about the novel Homegoing by Ya Jesse which is, it's a few years old by now, but I remember making the horrible mistake of finishing that book in a Starbucks and having to like literally get up from the table and go to the bathroom because I, I was so overwhelmed by it. 
and you know that the the other the other kind of list that I feel like we see a lot of are are not just the yearly list but the compilation lists of like these are the hundred books that you have to read before you go to college or these are the hundred books you have to read before you turn forty or or anything like that these these kind of like very broad curated ideas of of what's most essential about American literature or or in some cases international literature depending on where the um, where these lists are coming from. So this is a really interesting question. Of, of how to curate a list like that, that I can't wait to ask our guest, uh, Dwayne Betts, who is working with some other folks at Yale to curate the Million Book Project, bringing um, 500 titles into prisons around the nation. So I'm so curious, you know, especially for somebody who taught himself by reading whatever was available, how do you choose, especially when the stakes are so high? So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Dwayne Betts joined us from the road. Reginald Dwayne Betts is a poet and lawyer. He is the author of A Question of Freedom, a memoir of learning, survival, and coming of age in prison, and three poetry collections, the most recent of which is Felon. He's also the founding director of the Million Books Project, whose mission is to build a 500-book freedom library and place it in prisons in every state in this country, in Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico. These curated libraries promise to build community, both amongst those incarcerated and the prison staff, and between those incarcerated and their family and friends. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, Dwayne. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Dwayne, you've you've written about the fact that while you were incarcerated, there were no programs for you to further your education or job skills, and um, that you had to teach yourself. What did it take for someone to to foster their own education as you did, especially when you were so young? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's a lot of different answers, but in, in a lot of ways, the most important answer is it took me to have a a fair amount of people around me who I saw doing different things that I decided to emulate. So my first year in prison, I saw a kid who, um, who had taught himself Spanish and he was reading a Spanish novel on the yard. And, and that made me know it was possible to do that. I once had a sale partner who was like a mechanical genius. He could fix anything. And although that was never my, my skill set, because I knew he taught himself to do that in a prison cell, I just knew I could teach myself to do um, different things. You know, folks would get prison legal news. I took a writing class. I got hip to the to the writing writers market and the poets market. You know, I think um, education is a complicated thing in prison, and and a lot of people are working to educate themselves, whether it's for religious purposes, or um, or whether it's to sort of know something more about the world. And, and some of that ends up being jack leg. You know, you fall into a six month stretch where all you read is books about conspiracy theories. But all of that becomes the foundation of, for me, it became the foundation of figuring out how to learn and figuring out why it was important to to want to learn. So you're also the founding director of the Million Book Project. We were wondering, could you tell us a little bit about what the Million Book Project is doing and how it's going to address those issues, providing books um, for people who are incarcerated? And then how how did your team cut down this endless list of possibilities to 500 titles? Yeah, I think we're still in the process of cutting it down. And some of that is just um, the sort of practical things that you have to do. Um, you know, some books aren't in print in the way they would need to be to supply us with 500 books. So some of it happened that way. But then um, truly, you know, you want to have books that it's all kinds of books, right? So you might say, well, do you have a manual in there on how to uh, change oil? I mean, and that's a really relevant, practical book. Or you might say, uh, how many cookbooks do you have? And those are relevant, practical books that exist almost throughout 
bookshelves, but we don't have those books. And you might say, um, you know, I've read a lot of books that um, that I consider like fast food and I enjoy them, but um, I don't go back to them. They don't give me nourishment. And some writers write both kinds of books. And so all of those questions went into play, but I should say um, the Million Book Project begins with this notion that freedom begins with a book. And what we're doing is curating freedom libraries. And these are 500 book collections that are in some ways what we think is quintessential, gateway literature, foundational work, and it ranges from poetry. It's mostly poetry and fiction. And it's more poetry than maybe other people's lists would be because I'm a poet, but it's a lot of fiction. And, and this book list, like any book list, uh, is idiosyncratic, but it really is meant to, um, to open wide doors to people in the inside. You've written about a number of books that had an impact on you, um, like A Lesson Before Dying and Crick Crack. Um, are there any books that you could name that are on the list, even just one that's incredibly personal for you? <laughs> oh, I'm asking you for the sneak information. secrets out here. One of the things we wanted to do is find a way to make million book project distinct and you know i got locked up on um in december of 1996 when i was 15 years old and i was released on march and um and i've been home now for 16 years and so um one of the things we wanted to produce is a freedom suite within the freedom library and that freedom suite is a series of 16 books that are in the public domain that we're publishing i started a publishing company called Fentress. And Williams, named after three of my friends who have been in prison, who um, I got out, I helped to get out either on parole. But so we're going to publish these books. And I can tell you a couple of those books. Um, and I can tell you one other thing that we're doing with the publication of them that I think is fascinating and it's going to be uh, really important. So, one, we're publishing them. And, uh, and two, we're going to have contemporary introductions. And those introductions are going to be. Um, not traditional introductions, but they're gonna be letters. And the reason why they're gonna be letters is because the primary way that people inside communicate with each other and communicate with the outside world is through letters. And so we wanted to have introductions that were more intimate, um, more personal and less kind of uh, academic. And so far the writers of those, I'll tell you a few books. Um, we're gonna do Jane Austen and Marlon James is doing the introduction of Jane Austen. We are doing, um, Mrs. Dalloway, Daniel Allen is doing um, an introduction for Mrs. Dalloway. George Saunders is doing an introduction for Dubliners. And, uh, and we have a series of other books that's in this Freedom Suite. And we think that this, in many ways, is uh, Great Expectations. Nikki Davidoff is doing an introduction for Great Expectations. All of these books somehow contemplate what it means to desire to be free. Uh, William Stone is doing the introduction for Middlemarch. Uh, William Stone is a good friend of mine. As a, he's a lawyer. And uh, George Eliot is one of the namesakes of his daughter. And it's like fascinating, you know, because this is um, a black man and Middlemarch was so important to him that his child is a, is a namesake of the author. So I think um, this whole thing is about freedom and possibility and what literature allows us to imagine for our lives and for others that sometimes, sometimes the world doesn't. I really love the idea of, of those introductions being letters and, and, and how personal that that might be. And 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 even just the idea of of having uh, more contemporary writers giving their perspectives and and 
and the reasons that they find these books so these classics so important to them um that that's going to be a really exciting part of the project i also wanted to ask a little bit about your writing one of the things that you're often balancing is going between advocacy for those who are in prison and consideration of uh, the victims of their crimes and especially given the national discussion over mass incarceration how do you navigate those those two spheres yeah i mean i think um one i don't know if i navigate it well um, but two, when you say, how do I navigate it? I think one way I navigate it is by acknowledging that it needs to be navigated. You know, poets tend not to be ideologues. I mean, writers tend not to be ideologues, maybe at least in that writing. And so sort of writing gives me, you know, opportunity to really think through how to, how to have um, big ideas in text while grappling with other contradictory ideas. So I think that's that's how I do it, but that, that's an incomplete answer. And, and part of the reason why that's an incomplete answer is because the writer's job in a lot of ways is not necessarily to provide solutions. And so, you know, all I really need to do is, is hold space for the complexity of it all. I mean, but the challenge is um, as soon as you become an activist, as soon as you become an advocate, part of what you, <laughs> part of what you feel that you are is right. And, and being right is not conducive to sometimes being honest. I'm really interested in this, especially since you've written a memoir and then you have your poetry collections. You're dealing with such big issues in, in both of these. Do you approach those differently between writing uh, nonfiction and writing poetry? Or is it just kind of um, speaking the same language, but a little bit differently for you? I think it is. Uh, I think the medium provides different opportunities. And so some of it is being cognizant of the opportunities that the media, the medium provides. But I think it is a little bit of, 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 of like knowing that and recognizing that that space lets me do some different things. So we want to end on what might be kind of a very big question, but we'd love to hear your take on, on this. What, what do you think is the role of, of literature and writing in political resistance or activism? <laughs> I, I, I told you it was big. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a really good question, though, because, you know, because one of the things is like, is the writer part of the vanguard? And um, and the writer may be a part of the vanguard, but, you know, the vanguard may deploy and make use of the work of certain writers, even if that writer doesn't lean in the same way politically. I think it's a, it's a really individual question. And it's a hard one because when you think about Pablo Neruda, when you think about a lot of writers who are like deeply involved in the political, you know, the political landscape of that time period, we don't have that in the United States. I mean, we name a writer who you feel like was deeply involved in the politics of the day. And we got to figure out what does it mean to be deeply involved? You know, one version of it means to be a statesman, stateswoman. One one version is, is just to be an ambassador. None of us know what an ambassador is. So, you know, like, like that's one of those jobs that none of us really fully understand what it means to be an ambassador for the United States to another country, especially if you're talking about a smaller country. I, at least I don't know what it actually means. If you say what is the day-to-day job of an ambassador um, of the United States in, like, in, in China, and you imagine it might be more challenging in certain countries than in other countries, but I'm just saying, I don't know what that means. So, so I think the question is interesting. I find that question really compelling because, and not just because I don't have an answer to it, but because I think... Um, the question forces me to reflect on what it is I want to do. It's, it's wild too, because I will say this: I'm, you know, I've been appointed to something by President Obama, um, the the 
OJJDP uh, coordinating council member. But that that like you could say, I have, you have no idea what that is, and I would understand. But what that job primarily consisted of was um, it was these quality meetings that were hit, that were chaired by the attorney general or the associate attorney general, and that meant that I got to be in the space with Holder or his associate on on really a quarterly basis. And during those meetings, you would have every um, agency in the United States talk about how their work was sort of intersecting with this idea of, um, it was the Office of Juvenile Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. So they would talk about how their agencies were doing work that was um, seeking to, you know, decrease juvenile um, delinquency across the country. And so it was compelling, but really what I got a chance to do was learn a lot. And as a coordinate member, sometimes, I mean, we got to ask questions of people, but it was the, the the office, the OJJTP, that office was doing most of the heavy lifting, but we got to be there as a kind of advisory board. They got to participate in the meetings, ask serious questions, and get briefings on things that I otherwise wouldn't have known about. Like former Attorney General Holder, he had a, uh, he, he had a whole brief about trauma-informed care dealing with juveniles. Or, 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 or somebody else, they did a, a long thing about the way in which the juvenile justice system was working and how they were like attempting to perform some of the laws that was holding um, teenage girls liable, criminally liable for, for prostitution before they were at the age of consent. So I, I thought it was important to be involved in this, but this is on the, on, the, on the lower frequencies. Most people don't understand what this is or what this means. Uh, now here in Connecticut, I am a commissioner on a criminal justice commission. That means that I am um, hiring the prosecutors for Connecticut. So that's me involved in politics on a, on a slightly higher frequency. But again, this is, this is one, not a movement, but also this is two, not something that people really notice. And so the question I think that you're really asking is what level of, of, of work matters? And so maybe I wanna step back and say, I think writers already are actively involved in social change and making things happen. And they're involved on the organizational level and grassroots organizations and nonprofit organizations, but also in government. And, and I think what you're really asking is, is, is how or why aren't more prominent writers with high profiles in the positions that matter? And I don't have an answer for that. Besides the fact that because writers are supposed to be truth tellers, it is hard to get, in, get on a level where you're remotely visible. And, and that's for a few reasons. One, because the writer is probably just too honest by half to make it to that space. But two, I almost feel like when it comes to the public space, everybody acts like the writer is trying to exploit the world. So I'm not going to be on Oprah with my message. or I'm not going to be on the, the Sunday morning show with my message. or I'm not going to be um, appointed to some. I'm an attorney, but I'm not going to be asked to work in DOJ with my message. Partially because a lot of people will imagine that I'm just trying to use the work as a way to to raise my profile. And it feels like that's how they think about creative writers. And that's why they don't invite us on, you know, the Sunday morning circuit, the way that you can be, if you're a nonfiction writer, writing and talking about the same issues. Yeah, it might've been an impossible question, but I, I, I feel like I have about six different new ways to think about it now. I really appreciate that. Well, thank well, you so much for being here, Dwayne. We really appreciate it. And it was a pleasure speaking with you. All right, you guys take care. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.